So of all the things that we do over here while recording at Producer Ross's Kitchen Table, one of my favorite pastimes is eating fucking cookies <laughs> while I'm drinking all this alcohol. So today I come over, and Producer Ross has this wonderful plate of cookies set out, these adorable little circular gems of joy. And I thought, well, that'll be fun. Caleb even pointed me in their direction. He said, oh, you should see what Producer Ross got for cookies today. But I said you shouldn't eat one. Yeah, but I think you were uh, – clearly you were trolling me. I thought you were trolling me in the wrong way. So then I bit into one of those sumptuous little little fuckers. And guess what it was? It was a Chips Ahoy s'mores cookie. All right? So so let me just say – let me just say something, okay? <laughs> we're like the two at a dragon, man. One of us always lies and the other one always tells the truth. To all of you people, I'm looking at you, Producer Ross – who heard me lose my shit about s'mores and then thought, well, we should send him pictures of s'mores stuff or suggest that he eat s'mores things or bring cookies that are fucking s'mores flavored to a podcast recording. You're dead to me. So I want to cheers to the rest of you reasonable, sane humans who have Those of you left fucked alive. with me on this. Right. Yeah. God bless all of you. <laughs> I'm Caleb, and welcome to Mix 6. I am here with... Spencer. And we are here to have six conversations and drink six beers. We'll talk briefly about the beers, and the conversations will go till question marks. Question like marks. You, you know it's a good party. time. Um, and here in the pre-party, we talk about our five-point rating system. Classic at this point, even though it's rotating in different every time. Uh, but, Spencer, I think you need to explain this one. Yeah, so uh, this is a hard sorry goes out to everyone. Um, as you probably know at this point, uh, the episode nine that wasn't, Featured a Goosebumps rating system that we never talked about. But I assure you, we had one at Courtesy the time. of Brandy, correct? Courtesy of my wife, Brandy. God love her. Um, and uh, what we found out in a lot of the comments following the release of episode 10, which followed the episode 9 that wasn't, a lot of people asked where the Goosebumps rating system went, which suggests to me that there was some fervor for a Goosebumps rating system. So rather than let it disappear, as we want much of episode 9 to disappear into history and myth, by episode 200, episode 9 will be like a landmark for yeah, us. Yeah, and Goosebumps needs – it deserves better than that. It does deserve better than that, okay? It it doesn't need to be its own ghost in a story about ghosts. Yes. Episode, episode 13, we make a nice little pun there, folks, okay? Mm -hmm. So producer Ross, add that in, okay? Drink because he won't. <laughs> so anyways, we've brought the Goosebumps rating system back. Uh, in this episode. So here's where we were in episode nine. I haven't really changed my opinions because I still haven't touched a Goosebumps book for 20 years. All right. So a number one, and as you know, at this point, our scale moves from one to five. A one is a beer that has absolutely ruined your life. You want nothing to do with ever again. A five is a beer that has changed your life. And oh my God, do you want to drink the rest of it? A one, or in this case, the worst thing is you can't scare me. All right. I remember much of the Goosebumps universe. I don't remember this. But I did look online for lists of Goosebumps book books ranked, and this one was the worst Goosebumps book of all time a couple of different places. So I assume that's true is how I feel about that. Somebody quickly start a creepypasta book about a Goosebumps book you remember reading but is nowhere located on any registry. Oh, man. It's just like the spelling of the Berenstein Bears. Yeah, that needs to oh, be in there. man. Yeah. yeah. Deep cut. Um, <laughs> second is Go Eat Worms. Come on, guys. Really? Listen, R.L. Stein. I know you were writing a lot at the time. Oh, well, he wasn't. 
the Ghost Riders. Right, but I feel like I feel like you and or your subordinates really phoned it in on this one. How about you go eat worms? But um, sh- producer Ross had that in. Drink again. Uh, third, and this is kind of the standard. I think that if you were to ask people, hey, what do you remember about Goosebumps books? I think this is the one which would come up most frequently. It's your standard bearer, your average, and it's Night of the Living, Living Dummy. He is sort of a mascot of the franchise. He really is. Yeah. You know, I remember Scholastic Book Fairs, and I remember that book being on the cover or all of the order sheets. because posters like, that you could get that's for right. prizes. That that's dummy right. was sold a lot of books. He was everywhere. He was the herpes of Goosebumps. Yes. Okay? And I feel like I feel like that's a reasonable metaphor. All right. So now we're into the good stuff, the things that you want to drink more of. So a four is like, damn, this beer is good, and I'm going to go look for this, bo- this beer again. And this is Welcome to Dead House. So Welcome to Dead House, if I remember correctly, is the first Goosebumps book. And... I remember reading it and thinking, oh, this is not like – this is not just your your run-of-the-mill, like, ooh, that's kind of spooky. There's some shit going on here, man. Like, someone thought about how fucked up this could be, and then they wrote a book called Welcome to Dead House. Yeah, I mean, Goosebumps can get into some, like, crazy fucking body horror or some, right. like, weird existential shit sometimes. Yeah. Like, for sure. For yeah. sure. So a four is Welcome to Dead House. And then a five, and this is a beer that kind of, like, changes your understanding of the genre that you only exclusively want – a five is One Day at Horrorland. So One Day at Horrorland is that book that really pushed the genre forward. So I'm thinking here of like um, Captain America 2, The Winter Soldier. Oh, yeah. Uh, where, or Harry Potter 4. You didn't know it could be this way. Right. Where where things just changed, right? The first three Harry Potters are kind of light. Kind of like a little the bit change dark. Right. from the animal. Kind of, I'm not doing this right now, Caleb. <laughs> all right? I'm not doing this. Okay. One day at Horrorland, they send they send someone down like a, a, a an amusement ride in a fucking closed coffin, and she's like trapped in that shit. I'm pretty sure it's like an 11 year old girl. That is that's some that's some fucked up shit right there. Mm-hmm. That's how a five should should handle you. You should put a five in your mouth, and your body should go, "What the fuck just happened?" Okay, <laughs> and it's that good. So a five is one day at Horrorland. You can't scare me. One, go eat worms. Two, Night of the Living Dummy. Three, Welcome to Dead House. Four, five, one day at Horrorland. Having said that, we're gonna get some beers. We're gonna start rating stuff, and we're on to beer one after this. Caleb, 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 what are you drinking? Well, Taylor recommended that I drink Innocent Guns Rum Cast. It's an oak-aged beer, but it's beard aged with rum oak chips. Uh, and it's a handcrafted Scottish beer. So I'm going to try it. Okay. He's trying it. He's drinking. He's thinking. He's tasting. I'm going to give it a three. Oh, okay. And I hate okay. to say it's a low side of Night of the Living Dummy. Oh, but- um, sort of a confused palate for me. There's there's some sugar rumminess very early in the taste, right? But like the oak is sort of overpowering, and um, it's really way more drinkable than I would imagine a beer advertising this much flavor. Sure, would be. Uh, I could drink probably quite a bit of them, which mm-hmm. is like a, a, a three indicator for yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right. Uh, and it's in no way gross. It's very drinkable. But, but it's, it's, a a, it's a three. So, But you said it was on the lower side of Night of the Living Dummy, so it's not like a hard Because it's not three. like – it's not a very interesting three. Yeah, got it. Like you can, hey, you can be a more interesting three. Sure. So. I get that. Uh, so in this topic, uh, which Brackets suggested, and thank you so much, Brackets. Hi again, Brackets. Yep, yep. Uh, you, you've knocked it out of the park a few times here. 
so in, in, in topic one, segment one tonight, we're talking about dissecting our fun, which is our typical game and or board game conversation. And Brackets has suggested to us, what are the quickest turnoffs to each of you in a board game? What are the quickest turnoffs to each of you in a board game? And given that uh, all of us have played a bunch of board games. It seems like a good topic. I don't know if you know that. If you haven't listened to any other podcasts, we do a lot of board games. going to start every episode this week. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a theme, they would say, in the social sciences. Mm-hmm. So, so, Caleb, I'm going to start with you first. What are the quickest turnoffs for you in a board game? Well, I didn't know quite what brackets meant here. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike brackets in a nonfiction paper, it didn't clarify for me. Got it. So, uh, for me, I didn't know if we were talking about like buying a game. Are when I've opened the box, of right? The game. Right. Because uh, I feel like the the metric is more challenging once you've bought it. Like once you're that invested, it's sure. got to do more work to yep. turn you off. Um, so I started sort of on the shelf kind of thing. Yep. And I'll be honest, it may not be honest all the time because I can think of numerous exceptions to this rule. But branded content. Yeah. If it's a movie, if it was a video game first, if it's owned by something like. Branded content, if they had the theme first and Mattel shit out a video game to fit it, sure, that is a almost sure sign that I'm going to be looking at some roll and move shit. Yeah, absolutely. And I want nothing to do with it. Now, I can think of numerous exceptions to this rule. The Bloodborne card game, very interesting game, hmm. very well designed. Uh, branded after a very good game, so like it hit, it hit, uh, it was fun on two different mediums, which is difficult to do. Yeah. Uh, but like I can also think of a litany of just shit, like say the Hunger Games uh, game that I got you, and then you then gave away and regifted to me. <laughs> we played it once. We did play it once, and it was forgettable. Yeah, yeah. I, I played a um, Game of Thrones based tile game, I think, at one point that wasn't wasn't a game at all. It's just something that said Game of Thrones on it, and someone put some tiles together. And said, make the tiles match up. But then that Lord of the Rings game, is, uh, which one is, is like your fa- the Reiner Kinesis Lord of the Rings game, is your favorite phenomenal. game ever. Phenomenal. And I see why. It's a very intriguing game with yeah. very intriguing mechanics. Right. So, like, it's a real hit or miss thing, but I think the thing for me is that when it misses, it misses by a mile. Sure thing. Like, it's it's a whiff. Yeah. I like so, this branded content yeah. thing. So, you you went for does that mean when I'm evaluating on the shelf? Does that mean after I've opened the box, right? Yeah, I've got, I've got stuff for when I open the box, but like, where's your shelf metric at? What are you looking for? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that, that one's kind of interesting because I hadn't thought of shelf metric. I'd thought of mechanic beyond opening the box or – Ooh, okay. Or and, – and I was kind of playing with a couple of these variables in my head while I was thinking about this question. Or what's my biggest turnoff when I'm in the act of playing a game with other people? Are there things that I absolutely cannot stand about the social setting or the interaction? Mm, okay. That's um, so I don't know that I have an off-the-shelf metric. Here, here's what I'll tell you uh, when – I guess the way I start to discriminate when I am buying things off the shelf, I'm generally looking at two things. So the first thing that I'm looking for is, does it seem different than something I've already played? Um, And I don't mean different in content because I'm okay if all of the content is reasonably similar. I'm okay playing 18 different varieties of a Lord of the Rings game. Yeah. But what I want to see is a mechanic. Can you advertise a mechanic you're doing different? That's right. That feels so fundamentally different so it doesn't feel like I'm doing the same stuff over. Is it the potion explosion box? We got marbles. When have you done that? We got marbles in a reasonably (laughs) constructed cardboard setting. You know what I mean? So part of it is, can you adequately pitch or characterize a mechanic difference, a mechanical difference to me that'll change things? The other thing, and like I know this is a really stupid answer and so I feel bad saying it but I think it's the honest to God truth the other thing is just price point 
I think oh, yeah. two games take themselves too 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 many designers take their games too seriously when it comes to price point. I get that the the standard entry point for a game that I'm really into is probably going to be between forty and sixty dollars. I, I understand that, and I'm willing to do that. But there are a couple games. I've been trying to find new games for us to really kind of experiment with in that campaign-like setting that we've done with Mice and Mystics uh, on game days. Yeah. And a couple of those games, which look really interesting to me, are like $89, $90 entry points. And uh, I kind of feel like, fuck you a little bit. That's, yeah, I'm really kind of interested in a, lot, a number of games like that, like Blood Rage. Yep. Uh, time the Stories. One, time seems, Stories. Seems like a little high. Seems, I could be way yeah, off. Love- yeah. And that's the thing for me, like with that price point thing, I think there's kind of an uncanny valley there. Like, yes. Because you get into uh, Brewing USA. That's right. And I'm like, yeah, I want that. Absolutely. And then, like, shit will be on sale or it'll be like a reasonable card game, like, uh, shit, I don't know, um, Wizard Deathmatch, whatever it is. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's called Fire Mountain. Yeah. Um, Like 20, 30 bucks at max. Yeah, I'm, I'm into that. But like once you get into like the sixty Epic Spell Wars. Epic, Epic Spell, Spell Wars, Wars, yeah. yeah. Once I get into like the sixty or seventy range yeah. and it's not like obviously a box I've never seen before, now I'm like, well, I could hate that. Yep. Like I could pay seventy bucks to really d- dislike this. And I'm in it a lot for hating that. And yeah, yeah. And that's the thing, like on uh, you know, board game geek and stuff like that, like you can find great reviews of games <laughs> that you're gonna play yeah. and absolutely loathe. Because you know, there's such a wildly shifting demographic between the miniatures and the war game guys, yeah. and the story game guys, and the like simple card game guy. Like it's it's all over the place. Absolutely. So once we've moved beyond the purchase point and we're mm-hmm. playing the game, the thing that sticks out to me the most about this question, I do think this is an interesting question, partially because I, in some ways the list of games that I won't play is so much shorter than the list of games that I will play. So I don't have a lot of discrimination metrics. Yeah. But as I started thinking about what games won't I play, they were all um, creative intelligence games, which we've talked about the value of creative intelligence games and why they're so interesting and fun. Hmm. But they were creative intelligence games in which the, the interpretation slash win condition was so nebulous that it made it hard to ever set a baseline. It's like Pictionary? Uh, Pictionary, I'm more thinking, and, and Brandy's going to kill me for saying this, but I'm more thinking about like In a Pickle. Okay, we probably need to devote a segment to this at one point. Right, yeah. In a Pickle is a game that I loathe. Right. And you and I share uh, just a unanimous hatred. An Iron Fist-like hatred. (laughs) An Iron Fist-like hatred. But but the thing about In a Pickle is like, so the the trick to me here, and this is the not fun thing to me. Some people think this is enjoyable, and I get that, and that's your thing. The not fun thing to me is like, so we have gone round and round a table on In a Pickle. And Brandy has kind of been on this side of things, and you and I have been on this side of things about what level of interpretation exists in terms of what what can and cannot accept in the game. <laughs> and, and the trick to in a pickle is that neither of us are technically wrong, and I fucking hate that. I have never gotten in a pickle. There, there is no in a pickle is like that episode of the Sandman where they play the game of like hope like or whatever is like i am a raccoon like i am rabies i kill the raccoon i am the doctor like you know all that kind of shit it's it's that with less rules like it's just so nebulous yep yeah it's playing tennis with the net and so so i i don't know if um if this is related this is related to one of two things for me and i don't know which one it is so you know i'll leave it up to you all to figure out one one half of this is and I've talked about this before in my concerns with RPGs. The non-linearity of the whole thing is difficult for oh, me. Oh, we're going to get to that. Oh, we are. Because, <laughs> spoiler alert, we're doing an RPG this episode. <laughs> yes. Uh, the non-linearity of the whole thing 
there's no there's no alignment to right or truth, so I can't default to anything when something goes wrong. On the other hand, there is just the is it important for me to have some sort of anchor uh, on which I can evaluate the fidelity of an answer? And so I don't it's probably some combination of both of those things, but if I don't have that, some final rule which says this is how you evaluate ambiguity in a game which is meant to be evaluated. Um, yeah, fuck you. That's how I feel. Yeah, for me, other than like just terrible mechanics like roll and move and shit like that, it's going to be um, quality of the pieces. And I got to be clear, like they have to be shitty pieces. Yeah. But um, that Hungry Games game, we played it and I played it. I made my kids play it again in a class. The pieces warp, like the pieces are meant to clock together, but the cardboard warps and twists. So it's like they make these like weird, such like, a good answer, fucking Madison, yeah. Bridges of Madison County, fucking picture X <laughs> bridges, and like you can't lay them flat, and it's awful. And here's the thing, like if you're making a board game, you're probably making some money, but you're probably not making enough money to be doing this other than something else. Right. If you have the ability to do the manufacturing and the distribution and the warehousing and get all of the fucking board games out, sure. or you have the ability to shop and pitch to a company like that, you probably care deeply enough about the hobby that when it comes to making the fucking cardboard pieces that or the various meeples or anything like that that you're going to put some time and some care into it yeah and if they're shitty and i mean i have a low quality for shitty i understand right. there's diff- like they have to be falling apart but if they're shitty if i can't store them without them getting fucked up yeah yeah that indicates to me that you're in this for the money which makes no fucking sense yeah. it's like being a landscape painter for the money i'm gonna get into poetry for the bitches and mm-hmm. fucking mm-hmm. skrill mm-hmm. like that's nuts that's like why would you do that and it just seems insane to me as a fucking demographic and then i really worry about who made this game or if this was made by committee or if this was made by the lowest bidder yeah and like that kind of stuff really makes me no that, that's that's a and it's not like system. i and, and there's some people who have like really high quality like it, my meeples need to have this they need to be made of this wood well, but look at, like look i'm at, not that guy no but look but, at brewing usa right there was clearly care and thought in in the production of that game right the bottle cap uh, economy um the tiles which double at coasters but feel like they have some quality behind them yeah you know, i'm even thinking of that you know the reiner kinesia lord of the rings game we've had those those standees that you march along the Sauron track, we've had that game for like a decade, and those things are still in really good shape because they're reasonably well made, and and they stand up to the the durability test, which is playing the fucking game a lot. Yeah, but if I play like a deck building card game, and like your cards aren't of the highest quality uh-huh. paper stock, what the fuck were you thinking? I'm gonna shuffle these things. Yeah. 17 goddamn times before we get into the end game. Absolutely. Like, these things are going to be cracked and nonsense yep. by the time I'm done. And I don't want to, like, get card protectors and go all, like, Magic the Gathering on this shit. It's right. one of a thousand games I have on my shelf. Yeah. And, like, it just indicates, like, all right, you're cutting costs. Just like, I, I feel like everyone's, like, rats trying to leave the ship at that point. Absolutely. And that's not a good way to start me on a game. So, branded content, uh, price point. Innovative or different mechanic. Up front. Up front. It can be in there, but you right. can't hide right. it. That's, that's, a mer- right. that's a marketing. Absolutely, thing. it is. Uh, clearly defined rules or evaluation standards uh, and quality. Yeah. I think those are totally reasonable. Producer Ross? Um, there were two things that, that came to mind for me. One is when I'm looking at games to buy. Uh, if it's expensive, it's okay. But if it's expensive and two-player only, then yes. I don't I don't want to get it. Get I'm, not, I'm not spending 60 to $100 like two player games are a hard sell for me because it's like 
either I'm hanging out with a bunch of friends or I'm not going like, to invite one friend to play one game. Right, you know? right. Uh, well, with couples, a two-player game is an easier sell. Yeah. But even at that point, I don't want it to be super fun. Well, a lot of a lot of these two-player games I'm thinking of are actually like war games and like yeah. you know, detailed, complex. Yeah, like I, I got um, Tail Feathers and I'm really excited to try it, but it's yeah. a two-player game only. Which is fucking crazy. Yeah. Because all of the other Mice and Mystics universe is not. Yeah. But I, I, but I really got, I mean, it's yeah. Mice and Mystics, so I'm just kind of supporting the brand. But like Seven Wonders Duel, we bought that the other day because it's like, Sarah and I need to play a two-player game. Yeah. Our Alchemist can support two players so we do that a lot and like um if it's a two-player game that can't support other people alchemists i'll pay 80 bucks for it absolutely yeah uh but if it's a two-player game that's only a two-player game like seven wonders duel 20 bucks or i'm out yeah, yeah exactly like, anything more than that no way it's if it's cult. cheap that's fine but yeah. if, if it's a big fancy you know there's it's just i mean for me i'm sort of a frustrated war gamer and i want to yeah. play more war games but they're all two-player only for sure um and then but i i don't think like it's different like when you have like a person in the house to play the other game yeah with. like I, I don't think it changes at all no absolutely no. Like that price point, like you're literally, it's a multiplayer fund. It's a basic economic problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing is actually when game mechanic wise, uh, it's not technically a board game, uh, but Munchkin, uh, and I feel a lot of other games have this, is the whole um, everyone gets to a certain point in the game and then no one can, pro- can progress or no one can be declared a winner because all the other players have screw you cards. Or there's a sort of a king making thing yeah. where one player can no longer win, but he can tr- decide to, whoever he screws over. Will also lose, yeah. and then the player who's left intact or has been attacked the least wins by default, not through their own virtue, sure but they just manage to. Yeah, the avoid most innocuous it. player wins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's an int- yeah, that's a really interesting approach. That might be a whole segment. Yeah, like I've been thinking about for there's a difference between a catch up mechanic, which is vital for a great game, yeah, and a fuck you mechanic, that's right. which can really yeah. stack. Munchkin any is game really bad about that. And, stack, it, and Munchkin's a fuck you mechanic. I think I think that's definitely a segment because like yeah, I also I got out of playing No Limit Texas Hold'em because I got very tired of the game. Instantly progressing, progressing to its farthest logical conclusion as quickly as possible with people shoving all in, and, and now the game. Now there's no more game, right? It's just dealing cards, and so it, it has short circuited like the nuance of depth and interaction. So yeah, and the psychology of it makes it work if you want to play it. Right. I need to be the most innocuous cipher right Sit possible around. at the table. Yeah. The second we like talk or banter or have any kind of joy in our play, yeah. that's when you're going to come right yeah. at my ass, whether I am your biggest threat or not. Right. And so, like everyone, like wear beige, yeah. and everyone like <laughs> button their top button of their shirt. Put on like a fucking night helmet so no one sees your face, right. and sit there in dead ass silence yeah. and lose money. Like yeah, that's not enjoyable. Definitely a separate segment. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that idea. So brackets, we hope that was helpful. Uh, I'm gonna grab a beer and we're on to beer two. Hey Spence, what are you drinking? Okay, so I'm drinking Evil Twin Brewings Don No. And I'm really excited to review this beer because some episodes ago, God knows how many at this point, we, we, I reviewed, I should say, a Pachamama Porter, which was a mashup between Evil Twin and another brewing company, two brothers, I think. And it did not go well. So I've been wanting to redeem Evil Twin because they do make some good beers. They make some solid beers. In this case, they've made the Don No, which is a sour. It's a Berliner Weiss style. Uh, it's a vegan Berliner Weiss style, if that matters to any of you in the world, with mango and pineapple added. Another solid marketing thing. Good label. Yeah, absolutely. Great they label. They have some great labels. So let's hope to God that I can redeem um, uh, Evil Twin here. 
I can. I very much can. Uh, asterisk and or caveat. I have a s'mores cookie kind of residue in my mouth, so everything's a little bit sideways. <laughs> um, but, no, that's really good. Your that's palate's a, in the upside down. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, that is a is a really drinkable sour for me. And as we all know at this point, I'm really into sours. That's a welcome to Dead House for me. That's mm-hmm. a four. Mm-hmm. I would drink a lot of those beers on tap. So good on Evil Twin. I'm glad we could bring it back around a little bit there. And while I drink this, Caleb, what are we talking about? All right. Oh, Holy, oh, jeez. Good intro, Caleb. Oh, jeez. Uh-huh. Oh, jeez. Well, I just know there's going to be a flood coming at us. So, right. Sports Planner, our number one vote, because you do such a fantastic Holla. Yeah. Thank you all for, for the support on that, for the supports planer. And, like, I'm looking at our outline here, and it just goes on for TLDR. Um, Guys, I went nuts on this. You went fucking nuts on it. And here's the thing. I knew you are. So, the question is, explain March Madness to producer Ross and I. Oh, boy. Yeah. And here's the thing. I know this is going to be fucking wild because I, I work at a school. We have people from all sorts. I have like 60-year-old special ed teachers that are just like matronly saints walking into the cafeteria every day. It's like, Duke fucked me like about, about March Madness practice. And people get into this shit. Oh, yeah. And I, it's just inscrutable yeah. to me. Like, so I, I don't know. Like, I don't know why. I, I don't know why March. I don't, I don't know why they're into college basketball suddenly and then not. I don't know why they're into college basketball but not other basketball. Right. I, it, it's just baffling to me from yeah. front to back. It's fucking crazy. <laughs> so I want to put two caveats on here. Caveat number one is we did a hot takes on ice before this with a lot of whiskey, and I may have had some beers in, in the pre-party. So <laughs> I'm about to throw a lot of data around. And God knows how coherent I will be in doing that. So whatever happens, happens. Like you're trying to burn down the business. Is this lost all of a sudden? Whatever happens, happens. Yeah, yeah. just remember, this is a podcast in which we drink beer. Okay, is what I want to say about that. The second thing I want to say is, and I've talked about this a little bit, for three years, I attended the University of Kansas. It's oh, where it's God. where my PhD is Here from. <laughs> so I have a vested interest in talking about college basketball because mm-hmm. it is where college basketball was fuck basketball was fucking invented. So everything that I'm saying to you, I want everyone to know that, that you haven't screamed rock chalk at this point in the conversation. Is you deserve a medal? It's coming. Someone okay. should someone okay. should pin on you. Yeah, <laughs> it it like winter is on the way. Okay, so just know that. All right, so here's what I've decided to do. I, too, want to talk about the insanity of March Madness, and I'm a little bit bummed that by the time this episode launches, March Madness will be six weeks, eight weeks. I think we're going to need time to decompress. We are. We're going to need time (laughs) to decompress. But all of you can now look back on March Madness and go, what was that about, for those of you who who aren't into it, and hopefully with a little insight as to the insanity that is March Madness. So here's – we're going to talk about three things. The first thing we're going to talk about is the nature of the tournament in and of itself. So how is the tournament constructed? So for you, you gamers out there, how is the thing built upon which we then go play? All right. The second thing I want to talk about is kind of what I think are the interesting narratives that underlie March Madness that are actually not true at all. And the third thing I want to talk about is the participatory nature of March Madness. So the bracket challenges and pools that people get to do at work. That's the one part I kind of suspect I get. Yeah. It's like you get to play the game, too. You get to, you get to play the game, too. That's right. Okay, so that, I want to talk about these three things. All right, so the first thing I want to talk about is just the nature of the construction of the tournament, how the game gets put together, all right? And as a caveat here, another caveat, I should have said three, generally I'll be referencing statistics and facts about NCAA March Madness as it pertains to the men's division rather than the women's division. I'm doing that for two reasons. One, culturally, when we say March Madness, we mean men's college basketball. Okay, that's not a me thing. That's a culture thing. That's a patriarchy thing. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. You're 
Only partially responsible. That's right. I'm only partially responsible. (laughs) Two, and I want to give this credit because it is important to me, it would be interesting to have the same conversation about Women's March Madness because UConn is currently trying to win its fifth title in a row and extend its its streak of like 100 plus, maybe 130 plus, like 110 plus games that it hasn't lost. Um, because Gino Ariema, who is the coach at UConn, the women's coach at UConn, has nine national titles. Uh, John Wooden, who is the UCLA coach of the 60s and 70s, is the only coach to have more. He has ten titles at UCLA. Gino Ariema is a legend unto himself and is worthy of his own conversation at Sportsplainer, as is why in a uh, market that is already clamoring for equality and parity, like the sports market is between men and women, why I think the dominance of a single program like UConn is actually maybe not good for that conversation because we can all write it off and say, well, yeah, but UConn's going to win again, so we don't need to worry about it. So that's a separate conversation. I'm largely talking about the men's tournament. To be clear, your three caveats and, and a two-point sub-digression on gender <laughs> politics. That's right. That's right. And we haven't begun yet. That's right. All right, great. This Welcome is going- to the party, assholes. All right. Okay, let's talk about how the tournament For is For those of you outlining at home. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hit that tab button. If you, if, you, if you at me, I will send you my notes, all right? At Egon. Order at the mix six. All right. It's a very um, detailed PowerPoint. So here's what you should know. The tournament is constructed based on a number of variables, some of which are disgustingly messy. And I had a similar conversation with all of you when we talked about the NCAA playoffs for football. Mm-hmm. All right. There are 68 teams in the March Madness tournament. Now, technically, there are only 64 teams in the brackets that you fill out for your work pools. But a number of years ago, they introduced a two play in game system which would allow four teams, by way of two games, to play into those last couple of spots. So it's a 68-team tournament that gets you to 64 teams in the actual tournament. Okay? Yep. So there's there's wrinkle number one, people. Yep. You guys ever see basketball? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I'm getting flashbacks. Yeah. So it's four play-in games. <laughs> Northeast, Southwest, East, Conference League. I was actually thinking of uh, that arm wrestling movie. It's a double elimination tournament. <laughs> it absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. So there Over are, the top. Over the top. There are four play-in games that get you four teams who actually get to go to what what's referred to as the big dance. Okay. 32 teams. Is this legitimately referred to as It's that? Re- legitimately referred to as the Big Dance and or March Madness. Fun fact, it's referred to as March Madness because Brent Musburger, one of the more famous sportscasters, uh, certainly college sportscasters of the last century. Is Musburger a real name? It is. It is. Yeah. Brent Musburger is famous for a couple of things. One is coining the term March Madness in referring to the insanity of the tournament. And two, making a wildly, wildly ridiculous compliment about A.J. McCarron's girlfriend during an Alabama National Championship game who happened to be, like, the uh, Miss Alabama at the time. And he made a comment about her her physical stature, I believe. So, anyways, neither here nor there. All right. What, wait. How? No. Here. I'm telling you what it, I'm Like, your tits are March Madness? Well, like, what is, yeah. how do you do that? So, okay, Caleb, you're blending sports here. You're making things difficult. Okay. <laughs> Musburger made a comment during a football game about A.J. McCarron's girlfriend, maybe fiancé at the time, because they showed her on screen because she was Miss Alabama and McCarron was the quarterback of Alabama's football team. And Musburger made a comment like, that's why you grow up to be quarterback, kids, so you can, you know, have sex with women like that. That was the implication there, okay? Are you casting a spell no, with I'm, these obscure goddamn references? <laughs> I like the sports, people. Okay, okay. All right. So, anyways, you start with 68 teams. Four of those teams 
uh, are are narrowed out by way of having disappear. Played, that's right. Having the unspeakable teams. Four other teams, which makes your sixty four team bracket. So you've got a sixty four team bracket. Of that, thirty uh, two of those teams are determined by having won their conference's championship, either regular regular season championship I get or that. Champion, championship. I understand game. a conference. Okay, There's great. a group of people. The person who wins is the winner. Right. Yes. Of that 68, the other 36 teams, so the teams that get to play into the play-in rounds and the teams who end up in the tournament, are determined by an at-large selection by a tournament selection committee. On, I shit you not, a day that is known as Selection Sunday, and it takes up like a bulk of an afternoon on ESPN where they show you seeding by seeding who is in the tournament and who's playing one another. So Are we back can- to our NCAA talk of like like Yeah. Is Condoleezza Rice on the committee? Yeah. And like Yes, shit. we are we are back to that. God talk damn it. Because that committee Illuminati New World Order. That's yeah, right. no what the fuck is with with sports and like these obscure dark committees that like decide everything. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Listen, if like half the organizations in which you ever work in your lifetime were as organized as the NCAA selection committees, you would work in the greatest organizations. Okay? <laughs> okay. Everything hey man, those get- Wicker Man festivals aren't gonna organize themselves. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Get over it, nerds. All right. So on selection Sunday, uh, the, the selection committee releases their results for the remaining 36 teams that get to either play in or play into the tournament. And that committee is made up of 10 athletic directors and conference chair people. Conference commissioners is what they're actually called. Mm-hmm. Those athletic directors and conference commissioners are potentially athletic directors and conference commissioners at schools who are vying to get into the tournament. So they have rules about when you can and cannot be in the room. So, for example, if you... Were the conf- were you- Unlike the Trump administration. That's right. <laughs> if you were the athletic director at, for example, Michigan State, and Michigan State was a bubble team, and a bubble team is a team that is like on Might the- get in, might not get out. Might, no. might get in, might not get in. You would have to leave the room while the other nine people discussed your status as a team, but you'd get to come back and discuss other teams in your conference. So you're a Michigan State athletic director. You have to leave the room where we talk about Michigan State, but you get to come back in when, for example, we talk about Michigan, which might also be a bubble team and make an argument for why Michigan shouldn't or should get in. Okay, So nothing political at all here. Move along, folks. Okay, Cancel the hearings. So that's how the selection committee is made up. Now, how does the selection committee make their decision? They use a number of different metrics, and I have taken the time to lay those metrics out for you folks. Feel free to fast forward now. What to be clear, what to be clear, on the outline, we are at point one, C, two, two. That's right. That's right. right. Hey, for those of you listening... I take the, I take my job seriously. <laughs> I goes, do work he, for you people. He goes after it. I did this at fucking six thirty in the morning. All right, <laughs> I was ready to roll. So the selection committee, these ten individuals who may or may not be politically motivated, use one of eight, at least eight factors in determining whether or not you should get into the tournament as a basketball team. All right, factor we'll do RPGs later in the episode. Yeah. Not a quarter this no. complex. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Woo! I yeah. feel like I'm playing GURPS. This yeah. is Listen, fucking ridiculous. This is a billion dollar industry. They got to get this right. <laughs> this is like diplomacy, you know? This is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the first thing that they typically look for is what's called RPI. And RPI is the rating percentage index. 
And that is a rating of a team based on wins, losses, and strength of schedule. And Easy strength enough. of schedule, I imagine, is where the politics come in. A little bit. So in some ways, it's not all that political. If you beat a team that was the third-ranked team in the country, you got a good win. If you lost to a team that was the 200th-ranked team in the country, you got a bad loss. But the ranking is where the politics But the ranking in. is where the politics like, the, the debate already happened by yeah. the time you're making this. That's all right. right. Okay. Right. So that's RPI. That's, that's typically the, the kind of like priority there. What we've learned over the last couple of years, and in 2011, 2011 in particular, there was a call for additional metrics outside of RPI because RPI was in some ways a limited scope. And so ESPN... So wait, wait. Besides the eight they use? Uh, besides what were, at, at that point, seven. Yes, they introduced, <laughs> they introduced an eighth. Which it's is the, all fixed. That's right. Wow. Yeah. ESPN introduced a separate ranking category outside of RPI that they call... BPI. Okay, at this point, this sounds like an educational conference, okay? <laughs> and ESPN's BPI is the Basketball Power Index. And the Basketball Power Index is supposed to be a predictive rating system built to measure how much better one team is than another team. So are they moneyballing basketball uh, here? A little or bit. Or trying to? They're trying to moneyball basketball. It sounds more like here. Dragon Ball Z. I mean, it sounds mm. like their basketball power level's over Well, yeah. <laughs> well, a little bit, right? Yeah. But so, <laughs> it, yeah, it's kind of a, yeah, it's a little bit of Goku, a little bit of not, right? Okay. So, so Like a lot of things in life. That's right. That's right. I've just described all of existence. So here's how they make those determinations. They, they try to go beyond wins and losses because wins and losses is in, in a vacuum, not a meaningful distinction. If I have 30 wins but I beat a bunch of trash, and you've got 20 wins, but those 20 wins are against quality teams, then wins and losses isn't adequate. So BPI tries to go beyond wins and losses, and they use a couple of different variables. Um, How a team won a game. So did you absolutely crush a bad team, or did you play a a bad team close? Because if you played a bad team close, maybe you're not as good as we thought you were. Or maybe bad team just had a really good night, but we should evaluate that. Alternatively, did you beat the shit out of a really good team? Because if you did, maybe you are a really, really good team. So how you actually won a game, Uh, the pace of play, uh, the strength of the opponents, travel, the BPI takes into account because... So away game, home game? Away games, neutral court games. And rest is days in between. And rest, then, is days in between. So are you playing back-to-backs? College games usually aren't back-to-back except for conference tournaments where you will play a back-to-back-to-back-to-back schedule, sometimes four days in a row. Um, Just so you know, there's a nerd subset that's really into data, and they are just... Right, Beating going right out. Yeah. You're welcome, <laughs> Punishing folks. themselves. Get the Jurgens. They've okay? gone blind already, and That's we're right. not even on point two. That's is right. this the secret nerd revenge on all the jocks, then? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> Your fate is in our hands. <laughs> yeah. No, the secret nerd revenge on all jocks is 538. Okay? <laughs> yeah. And if you don't know that, check out 538. Yeah. So BPI is a separate metric that the committee also com- considers. Here are some others. Um, the Sagarin computer rating system. I think we executed him in the 50s as a spy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Sagarin. Uh, the, the Ken Pomeroy ratings, also known as Ken Pom. The team's record on the road and at neutral courts. So when you play at not a home game but not a road game, how did you do? And this happens more frequently than you would think. Certainly early in the college basketball season, they'll do these invitational tournaments. Well, they're in, they'll invite oh, okay. a bunch of teams right. to like Hawaii. And, like, right. Kansas will play Duke in Hawaii. I'm glad you explained court. that because I thought they were just like, we'll meet you at the court. Like, <laughs> it was right. like, 
You're gonna get served. Third in Maine. <laughs> See you there. No. Warriors. Uh, they also evaluate the strength of your conference and your conference schedule. So, for example, based KU, on rating. That's right. KU plays in the Big Twelve. Historically, the Big Twelve is one of the better basketball. Is the rating uniform? Is there one rating system? Because, like, if you have control of that, can't you just fuck everything up? Well, it's not super uniform, but but it's reasonable. It's uniform enough. So, for example. When we come so the when we come up with the Associated Press poll on Mondays and the coaches poll, which are the two polls we typically use to rank teams week to week, those polls are usually pretty close to one another. We kind of get uh, an aggregate idea there. So if Kansas is ranked two and one and three and the other, they're two or three. If they're ranked one and both, then they're one. Uh, if over the course of the year, everyone in your conference, so Kansas is, Kansas, Kansas is in the Big Twelve. If your conference is made up of a bunch of teams who are ranked throughout the season, then the conference is a pretty decent strong, a pretty different, pretty decent conference. Okay, so they'll evaluate your conference and your conference schedule. They'll also evaluate your non-conference schedule. And here's where a couple of teams over the past couple of years have gotten in trouble. So, you, so, to, so, to, so to put a bow on this, we've launched motherfuckers into space with yeah. less computing power we than we've put into this. We literally <laughs> okay. have, yes. All right, correct. Go on. The, the, the decision to launch nuclear weapons <laughs> is less advanced than the decision to let a 65 or a 64 into a tournament, yes. <laughs> Strength of non-conference schedule, so you played teams out of your conference. Were they good teams or were they pancakes? Just easy uh, cupcakes, sorry. Want to get a win, no big deal. Mm-hmm. And then record against other selected teams. So how did you fare against other teams? in the tournament, and if you did pretty well against teams that we deem worthy of getting into the tournament, you too must be a team worthy so of getting into the tournament. So before you start with athletic directors, like before you start the season, these motherfuckers are playing three-dimensional chess. They, they absolutely are. Okay. And eight-dimensional chess, to be clear. <laughs> yeah. Once they whittle that down then to a number of 64, they seat the tournament in four regions. And in this region, we've got a 1 through 16, and in this region, we've got a 1 through 16. Is Sunbelt one of those? No, it is not. Sunbelt's a conference. Okay. Regions are like west, midwest, south, and east. Okay. And we're going to arbitrarily, not necessarily geographically, put those teams in certain regions, mm-hmm. and then we're going to seat them, 1 through 16. And moving forward, or starting in the first round, the 1 seed will play the 16 seed, the 2 seed will play the 15 seed, and so on and so forth, and we'll move all that all that inward until we get a, a, a regional champion, and that will be your final four. Mm-hmm. Okay? All right. That's the tournament. That's the structure of the tournament. That's the first thing I wanted to cover. So we've made it through slog number one. Slog number two, people. All right? Dry off your boots. <laughs> the second thing that I find interesting about the tournament is the narrative of the tournament. And the, one of the dominant narratives going into the tournament every year is the Cinderella narrative. The idea that anyone could win the tournament because they all get the opportunity to play. Right? I mean, that's kind of the interesting thing, that the nature of a tournament is such that even though, so a couple of years ago, Kentucky, for example, had an undefeated. It's the Hunger Games. Yeah. You're not the best in your district, but you might not die. Right, that's right. <laughs> Kentucky had an undefeated season, right? And Kentucky's perennially a preseason favorite to win the championship. They had an undefeated season. People thought if they can have an undefeated season, clearly they're going to win the national championship. They don't. They end up losing to Wisconsin, I think, in the final four. doesn't matter. What does matter is the, tur- the nature of the tournament is such that even if you're the best team all year, you may not be the best team at the end of the year. Mm. So there's this idea that anyone can fucking play, right? The reality of that, though, the Cinderella, Cinderella narrative is much different than the myth. So here's how close we've come to the Cinderella being true. In 2010 and 2011, the Butler Bulldogs from Butler University 
were in back-to-back national championship games, which is almost unheard of, that a team would make the national championship two years in a row, let alone a team from a mid-major conference, which means not one of the premier five conferences, and a team that largely no one had heard of, and a team that was a five-seed one year and an eight-seed the next year. Explain seed to our nerds. That's right. So seeding is based on once we've selected the 64 teams and we've broken them up arbitrarily. I totally know what it means. Right, but right. Not. No, I totally got it. I've broken them up. Oh, explain it for producer Ross. Is that what <laughs> yeah. you mean? Sure. Yeah. I've got my 64 teams. I've broken them up arbitrarily into four regions. Mm-hmm. And then I've seeded the teams 1 through 16 based on who I think the best to worst team in that region is. So at the bottom of the page? Yeah. In the bracket, that's like the shittiest. Yeah. So you said like the first fights is sixteen. So your fifth down plays. or your eighth down. Yeah. That's what seeds count. For. Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. Well, I get that. Not, now, not in terms of not that I didn't get it before. Not in terms of how the bracket actually looks, but in terms of how good are you? You're good enough in this region to be the best in this region or the worst in this. So region. it's not laterally associated. It's a little number next to the. That's team. right. It's that little okay. number next to the team. Right. Butler made it to back-to-back national championships games as a five seed and an eight seed. Mm-hmm. Um, that's significant because one they're from a mid-major conference and mid-major teams who historically do not play larger universities which can recruit better athletes traditionally do not go that far in the tournament let alone make it to the championship game two years back to back that is as far as i can tell about the extension of how the cinderella story can actually play out in the ncaa tournament because the reality is much different the tournament 16 has never beat one 16 seed has never beaten a one seed the tournament has, has been 15 held. ever be won? 15 beats twos. So almost every but year, never once. If, you're, if, you're, if you're betting, um, almost every year, a 15, one 15 seed will beat one two seed. I don't think that happened this year. I'd need to go back and look. But almost every year, a 15 seed will beat a two seed. If you're picking upsets, that's a safe upset to pick, as is a 12-5 upset. Um, a 16's never beaten a one. The lowest seed to ever win the tournament was an eight. Uh, in 1985, that was Villanova. Almost so, as if capitalism is real. Almost <laughs> as if there was something to this whole ranking thing in the first place. Uh, in the history of the tournament, which is over 80 years, so here's where the parody myth, the Cinderella myth, falls apart. In the history of the tournament, which is over 80 years, with some minor changes, the tournament's first played, I think, in like 1939 <clears throat> or something, and there's only, I don't know, like eight or 16 teams. But the tournament expanded to the 64-team format in 1985. So that's been going on for, what, 23 years? Uh, no, 30, 31 years, yeah. Um, that's how good I am at math. <laughs> Since that expansion, in the 80-plus year history of the tournament, only 35 different schools have won the championship game, okay? That is not parody, ladies and gentlemen, is <laughs> no. what that is, okay? So the Cinderella myth is part of the fun of the tournament, but it's also complete bullshit. So one of the things that's interesting to me, beyond just the construction of the tournament, which is a shit show in and of itself is the narrative which underscores the tournament premise, which is because it's a tournament, anyone can win. Just factually incorrect. Okay? History is not on your side. Third and final thing. Um, the brackets that you fill out in your work pools or friend pools, and the third reason I think the NCAA tournament is so fucking interesting, is because it is, as far as I can tell, the most participatory version of sports that we as Americans have maybe outside of the Olympics. I mean, I feel like the Olympics is a cultural... It feels like, it feels like a fantasy football without the barrier to entry. Like, you don't have to learn how to play anything. That's you right. just have to play shit That's right. on a board. Just pick stuff. Yeah. It's absolutely what it is. Ch- it's, children have picked perfect brackets before. Like, well, ish. I well, mean, ish, yeah. Yeah. Here's the math on those brackets. 
one in 9.2 quintillion odds to choose the perfect bracket. But again, this goes back to the myth of the tournament, which is anyone can win the tournament. It's like anyone can pick the perfect bracket. Yeah, but the reality of that is And your odds are about the same. Yeah, exactly. The reality (laughs) of that is so much fucking worse, right? But they don't talk about the reality. They talk about the fun because that's what makes it participatory. So here are some interesting things about those bracket games, which is for a lot of us probably the only way in which which we actually interact with March Madness. Uh, Wallet Hub has done some interesting estimation on the nature of brackets and what they mean culturally. They estimate that hourly corporate losses over the course of March Madness will amount to $1.9 billion <laughs> due to lost productivity. <laughs> and I can confirm this because the first week of the tournament, with Thursday and Friday games are Thursday and Friday, usually starting around 11. I sent you a picture of this from work. We just set up six monitors in our conference room, and we just watched basketball while we were "quote unquote" working for two days straight. Okay, <laughs> that's how that's how March Madness wrecks the economy. All right, March Madness may in fact may may be a Russian sleeper agent. Okay, Sagarin, <laughs> right. he's doing it. Here's here's another interesting. Is note that about, going to be the ending of the Americans a TV show? Yeah, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. just getting to March Madness. And yeah. So, yeah. Here's an interesting thing that Wallet Hub says. They also suggest that the average monthly consumption of beer, which is typically around four. 14 million barrels per month in America will balloon up to 18 million during March, and that pizza orders will also increase by 19%. You tied it back around to the podcast. Hey. Good for you. You hey. see that motherfucker? Yeah, put a bow on it, okay? <laughs> um, also, one other note BetFirm estimates that people risk around $3 billion annually on bracket pools. Um, I know this because I am in the middle of a bracket pool right now, and if things go my way this weekend, I will win that bracket. I'm on top of it right now. I actually just need one team to lose, and I'm in good shape, and I will make 100 bucks for, for functionally guessing. Holla. <laughs> Holla. Well, I mean, fundamentally uh, so maybe ge- this is why the people I have no fucking framework for being into sports get into it. That's absolutely right. Because they're, like, they're in it for the bingo money. Right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, if I'm going to play a lottery ticket, why wouldn't I play a lottery ticket where at least I can look at the math and make some educated guesses? on what does well in the NCAA tournament historically. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, I think it's interesting for three reasons. The nature of the construction of the game is so fucking weird that I find it fascinating, and it is its own cultural debate. I find the game fascinating because we tell ourselves one story about how it can happen while knowing full and well it it generally doesn't happen that way. And the third is the participatory nature of brackets, which allow a low barrier of entry, I think you're absolutely right, into a thing that most of us have no fucking clue about. Um, And it gets to feel like for a couple of weeks we're into this thing. I should also say that the only time all four one seeds have made the final four, which would have been a functionally perfect bracket, was in 2008. And in that year, Kansas won the national championship. Rock chalk. Time to get another beer. Yeah. First, holy shit. Second, I was long out of beer right. a while ago. Yep. And third, if you haven't guessed, we're going to run long this episode. Holla. So uh, you just get extra this week. Sorry, Thank not you sorry. for being patrons. Uh, yeah, shit. I need to rest. I'm going to go lie down. had time to decompress caleb what are you drinking i recopied my notes from the last segment good so uh i am ready to drink avery brewing company's rumpkin ale brewed with pumpkin and spice aged in rum barrels i'm really hitting the rum barrels today. you really are and this is going to be difficult because we love ourselves some schlafly pumpkin yeah and so i feel like everything is getting evaluated against a five here mm-hmm. yeah so i'm gonna give the shot i haven't tried it yet he's getting in there i like the gold leaf around the uh the the bottleneck uh-oh 
Well, he looks like he's liking it, folks. Uh, so this is against a. Let me scroll three miles up past your okay. mass. Um, it's competing against a one day at Horrorland, but it's definitely a welcome at Dead House. Wow, which uh, it's an interesting pumpkin taste. Yeah, that's great. That's really great. The rum kind of cuts it, and makes it a little bit more subtle. You want to try that? I do want to try that. While I'm trying that, what? Are, oh my! What are we talking about? We are going to talk about an ass mix sis, something that Lonnie asked. Oh, I like that. I like those pumpkin spices on the front end. Yeah. So Lonnie asked, uh, specifically in reference to our uh, professed enjoyment of the Punisher, mm-hmm. uh, that how anti-hero is too anti-hero for our personal taste, what which is, is an question. interesting question. I totally agree. I have racked my brain for this one. Mm-hmm. I have thought about all of the anti-heroes I could watch and all of the anti-heroes I couldn't watch, mm-hmm. and I've tried to figure out what what makes one as opposed to the other. And I've only come up with one good answer here. So in some ways, maybe I'm maybe I'm spent after the March Madness thing. So let me just give you the one thing that I could come up with. The thing that is too anti-hero for me is largely a setting-based question. So hmm. if an anti, if any hero, but an anti-hero in particular, finds themselves in the middle of a, a conflict in which they get to make one of two decisions, and one decision will obviously make things better, and one decision will obviously make things worse. It's too much for me when they continue to choose to make things You've mentioned this before. It's the Breaking Bad problem. It's the Breaking Bad problem. Yeah, that's right. Macbeth never ends. It just keeps spiraling down. That's right. He keeps getting away with it. No, I get that. I I get that. I can understand if you're awful. I can understand if your means of getting to truth or righteousness or vigilance are less than above board. I own all of those things with the anti-hero sentiment. What what I refuse to accept, or maybe just can't because it violates my emotional contagion problem and my binge condition, is the when given the opportunity to make things better or worse. Always choose worse. Always choose worse. That is, that is something that I just can't play with. Yeah. So for me, it's about the definition of a hero. So by hero, I'm talking about someone that's like generally representative of like the struggle of mankind against mortality, ennui, whatever sure. you want to fucking do. Um, and so I'm, I'm judging that by someone I can root for. And for me, too anti-hero is um, anti-hero in more than one character aspect. Mm. So for me, the purpose of an anti-hero is to humanize the hero by giving them a deep, tragic flaw – in a singular aspect of their perspective, because by making it a singular aspect, you're not simplifying. You're sure. making it a commentary. Sure. So um, you mentioned the Punisher. The Punisher is anti-heroic as fuck. Like is actually deep, just a criminal, deeply a, a social a serial killer. Yeah, in, in no doubt. But but he has the preparation. He has the grit and the determination. He has the drive. He has the focus. That is nice superhuman Batman levels, if you will. Right. But um, whereas the Punisher becomes an anti-hero rather than a hero than Batman is that he fails on the aspect of hope. Sure. He has no hope for redemption of anybody else. He has no hope for the redemption of the world. Right. He is ultimately a nihilist who is still driven to his quote-unquote heroic action. Um, he has failed on a singular aspect of it. And so you get these like really compelling stories about the nature of crime and poverty. You get this Garth Ennis run where he's murdering poor people and acknowledging that he's murdering poor people who never had a chance and not 
giving a shit sure because he doesn't give a damn once you've taken the path and he's got this like rigid loyalty to his mission yeah but he's just hopeless he has no hope he doesn't want to survive it he doesn't want to achieve anything he is a character without hope it's Whereas, such, a, such a good condition like i think about where i stopped watching dexter and where dexter fell apart for me is when he starts to violate multiple what you're talking about is functionally multiple integrity conditions or whatever they are, right? He starts so, cheating on his girlfriend. That's right. In addition to like in addition not to also being feeling a empathy for human beings. That's right. Or he starts he start he gets you know. And I know cheating. that seems kind of related, but like he does feel empathy for human beings because he only kills criminals. That's so right. Like he he only feels like yeah he loses that hope thing, right? And then he also loses like the ability to love the, and the he anchor also, thing, or 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 he gets he starts getting sloppy, right? Yeah. And so it's suddenly like. The meticulousness of his of his method, which I think is the distinguishing feature of of what he does, it goes away, and so now it's not particularly interesting or contrived. Um, it's sloppy. It's just murder. It's now. not a commentary on that aspect of human nature anymore. Right. He's just right. a dick. Yep. yep. Like the second they just become assholes, I'm done. People. That's right. Um, I mean, unpopular opinion time. This is why I fucking hate Catcher in the Rye. Oh yeah. I think Holden Caulfield's just an asshole. Right. If it was high school and Holden Caulfield was in the ass, I would be the guy who kicked the shit out of Holden Caulfield, like, on the reg. Right. Oh, your brother died. That's real fucking sad. Too bad that never happened to anybody else, and you're, like, lying to people and stealing from people and just generally being an insufferable asshole. Absolutely the worst. Like, no. I have no fucking sympathy for that person. He's not an antihero. He's a character, and I'm fine with characters who are shitty. I'm fine with characters. Yeah, who are some shitty. stories need. But if you're going to use the term anti-hero, yeah. they're following a heroic journey, archetypally, but they fail in one aspect of it, and that failure is a highlighting force. And if you have more, if you're high, if you're like that kid that highlights everything in the article and understand nothing about it, yeah. It's the same issue in the anti. Yeah, that's such a good condition. Yeah. So, so the choice to make things worse or better continuously make things worse. I totally get that though. Yeah. Like oh. Walking Dead. Like I could just oh, rattle off shows yeah. that are that are like that with no win condition. Shows that always I get quit. worse. Yeah. Yeah. Exclusively on that premise that I understand that in some ways I'm not supposed to root for you, but I'm rooting for you. But at some point you're not rooting for yourself. And yeah. You so, don't have dramatic pulls when everything is failure. That's absolutely right. Uh, and then I think about. I think about shows that I do like, um, kind of embarrassingly, like uh, I love The Blacklist, even though I know it's formulaic and really bad, mm-hmm. but I love it. And, I'm, and I, don't, I don't really have a lot of guilt around that because I think that James Spader is just like, just wonderful. Kind of kills it in that part. He just kind of crushes it, yeah, as Raymond Reddington. I think that here's a man who has one thing that is awful, right? But everything else about him is like upright. Omnicompetent. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And so they hero but for. Yeah. I actually think you've listed a better condition here than I have. I want to chalk that up to the fact that I put most of my preparation for today into March Madness. <laughs> yeah, no, no one, no one's calling you on not bringing everything. That's to absolutely the table. right. Yeah. yeah, but that's the rule. I think that you specialized in a single aspect, I like did. an antihero. That's right. That's right. And you're welcome, everyone. <laughs> and on that note, I'm going to grab another beer and we're moving on. Hey, Spence, what are you drinking? Okay, so the name of this beer is almost as long as that NCAA segment. <laughs> uh, it's it's Crooked Staves Artisan Beer Project St. Breda Bredanomyces Citrus Wild Beer Valencia Orange. The third. <laughs> that's, 
That's the fucking name. It's an artisan ale brewed with citrus and all of the words. Yeah. We we have a nice thesaurus here with an orange nose. It's got title. It's it's got land, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Woo! That's good. My god. That's a lot of orange, guys. That Valencia orange really gets in there. Um Oh, is oh. it orange proportionate to words? No, no. <laughs> proportionate? No. Um, ah, man, I'm making drunk puns now. So, okay, I got to say something. The front end is good. The front end's a four. Uh, welcome to Dead House. The back end is a two. A go eat worms. It's Ooh, like that's a big jump. It's a little bloody on the back end, and I am not crazy about that. Can I try that? Yep. So the math here says go with a three, which is a Night of the Living Dummy. Uh, and I'll take the math on that one. The, re- oh, the reality oh, is, mm. yeah, the reality is, it's more of a two than it is a four. So it's probably like a go high go eat worms huh. so high two for yeah. That's the appropriate response. Oh, on the yeah. back end, right? Yeah. Really hits you like in the yeah the throat. It, yeah, it tastes Ooh. like someone punched me in the mouth, and now the the remnants of that are running down my like throat. literally in the mouth. Yeah. like you yeah. were. Or just like a dish towel in the back of my mouth. So anyways, I look forward to choking this down while we talk about Caleb. So Living with Humans, our number two vote. Yep. Thank you very much, listeners. Justin Burt asks uh, that we talk about something that has, you know, vexed me in recent years. It's vexing. So what are the effects of Facebook? I know you don't Facebook, so I expand. Not really. I think at this point. What are the effects of Facebook slash our ubiquitous social media on modern human life. Because this is a big factor in living with humans nowadays, and you have to fucking plan for it. You do. Yeah. You do. So really good question. Um, this shit sneaks up on you. It can cause problems. It does. It does. So what? What? what is the change in interaction or discourse or communication style or culture based on an era of people who have interacted with ubiquitous social media? All right. I have a couple of thoughts on this. The first one, and probably the most prominent one, emanates from my time as a high school teacher. Um, Ooh, right, boy. Which was I know what you're talking about there. Which was reasonably short lived, <laughs> um, because I didn't love it. And so I would say the first thing to me that the first or most preeminent effect of ubiquitous social media uh, in modern human life, certainly for the younger generation, is the belief that because I've said a thing, a thing is therefore important. And I struggled with this mightily as a high school teacher. It was a sense of entitlement around everything that anyone said, because I think what Facebook has done in some odd way, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I am, is give us all the sense that because I've said it in a public forum and because other people respond to it, because a lot of people like things or share things or retweet things or respond to things, anything that I've said then in a public forum must also be of equal weight or value in a classroom or not in a classroom on a Facebook It's a court post. transcript for life. It really is. It, it, becomes, it becomes a everything has imminent value because I've said the thing. And I think the kind of like sub issue there is, and therefore I have the right to say anything because it's also valuable. And so it has really undermined what I think is a significant trait of many humans that I care for, which is the ability to self-monitor what one says. Um, And I think in some ways it's said, don't self-monitor. There's a place for that somewhere. And so why would you bother cutting it out of your sphere? 
I'm not trying to silence anyone. I'm not trying to say what you what you say does or doesn't matter. What I'm trying to say is the belief that everything I say matters. Uh, I feel like that's an overblown sense of self and entitlement that I'm not crazy about. What about you? Man, that's really interesting. I kind of want to respond to that first. Yeah. Like, I hadn't thought about that. Speaking of the antihero thing, mm-hmm. you sort of like took my legs out from under me with that uh, analysis of it. Yeah, like speaking about podcasts and stuff, I totally get that. Yeah. Like when people will refer to things I've said four months ago that I have completely <laughs> fucking forgotten. Right. And to be clear, the skating the razor we're doing right now of drinking a couple of beers and then having philosophical oh, conversations. Man. We're asking for it. But, I mean, I am of the belief that in Vino Veritas – if you're the kind of asshole that gets drunk and then beats his wife and uses being drunk to beat his wife as an excuse, you're an asshole sober? Right. Like, right. you were, like, maybe a more controlled asshole, but you're an asshole. You're still an asshole. So, and, like, and here's the thing. Like, if I say something off while I'm drunk, yeah. I deserve right. fucking censure right. for it because I said it. Absolutely. Like, I still maintain myself right. regardless of alcohol. Yep. Um, and that I deserve whatever recrimination i get for saying that thing yeah uh but 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 uh i did not interpret this question that way mm-hmm. and that got in some deep shit i got i interpreted it into like some logistical living with human mm-hmm. shit mm-hmm. so i have incorporated ubiquitous social media into my everyday existence right. to the point where i need some internet time yeah i need some twitter update time i need some facebook update time i need some multiple google account update time between yeah. my rpg business and my teaching account and my personal account and the and podcast the podcast right. account uh i need some patreon time like i just have to do it at this point because there's financial incentivization tied to many different aspects of it and it's not rationally placed i don't have like a money coming in one place kind of thing i got i gotta do it all right and so what i have found is that that is damaging the human relationships because not because i have any problems here or anything like that right but because there's an exponential multiplier on it the harder i work because i work significantly with humans as a teacher yeah the harder I have to work and the more hours I have to put in, which, let's be honest, if you're going by the NEA, that's 53 hours a week, mm-hmm. 50 minutes of which are never paid each day. Right. The harder I'm working in a week, and, and that's average, so sometimes it's like 60, 70 that, yeah. the more I need to disconnect from reality and check up on that shit for like – legitimate financial reasons in addition to like the little dopamine boost of like oh somebody liked my post which is everybody gets yep. i'm not above that absolutely but the problem is that's ex- inversely proportional to the amount of need i need to connect that's right. to like say sarah that's right so like if it's a 70 hour week and i get home and i just cannot talk to another human being more because i'm an introvert by nature I need to sit down and look at my phone yeah. like a dummy for an hour and a sure. half, like solid, checking between different accounts. And that is exactly the wrong time to mm-hmm. do that because I have been working 70 hours that week right. and I should deeply connect with the person I share a home with. Yeah. And that to me is the most startling impact of it because mm. you really have to like metagame your whole like hourly percentage of time to realize I need to throw this shit away. If I miss if I miss a contact, I miss a contact. I, I I need to do that because like it's inversely hampering my life. And I don't I don't encounter this like during a regular four hour week or like the summer at all ever. Right, we're always fine. But like as things get worse, I need that connection more 
But that connection in the digital world harms my real connection sure. in inverse proportion. Yeah. Which is just a bizarre fucking ratio for me to navigate. Yeah, man. That sounds fucking brutal. Um, and, and I get what you're saying. It makes complete sense to me. And I'm not, I'm not saying we're not handling. I'm not saying like Sarah and I are on our phones no, every no, no, night no. and like I don't remember her name or anything like that. Right. But I, I am it's saying Sarah. that like right. it's a challenge. Like yeah. it's a challenge to police yourself. Sure. And like I understand that if I'm having trouble doing it, there are people who are not doing it at all yeah which oh, is which absolutely. is compelling that that to me is actually so it's kind of the the subconscious nature of the whole thing in some ways that 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 has become my habit and my habit is if i'm not doing anything and anything is a pretty pretty loose definition there if i'm not immediately watching something that is interesting to me on television or having a conversation with someone directly or reading a book or intently intensely looking for a specific thing in my home or interacting with my dog, my go-to is, oh, I'm sitting here doing nothing, pick up my phone and get on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. And so the habit. Iron Fist? Yeah. By the time we got past... Oh, my God. Uh, Baz I've gotten Holly so being in much there. done. Sarah and I have played... I can't count how many games of Paperback and Lords of Waterdeep yeah. just trying to distract ourselves from how awful it oh, is. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, multitasking is becoming my norm, but I'm also a scholar and academic, and I've read some... Cognitive fucking people right. like doing research sure. on how terrible that is for getting shit done. Yeah, it's not really multitasking. It's just paying attention to other stuff. Yeah, it's just fucking up your attention span. Yeah. And I know I'm doing it, but I understand it's like a necessity of modern life now. And like, yeah. it's a weird place to be. It's, it's real a weird. weird position. No, it's a really good question for me. I'm also glad that we both had very different interpretations to this. Um, the thing that stuck out to, stuck out to me at the moment I read this was the experiences I had with a generation who grew up with this thing. And what I feel like that entitled them to do, which is you know not not a n negative comment. It's just it's a difference in how these things matter and fit together. Your approach, though, to the very the the very nature or soul of day to day life, logistical, yeah, like time spent with X versus time spent, with and the y. almost habitual uh, use of social media as a way of decompressing. It's not almost habitual at all. Right, right. It's, it's by habitual. definition right. habitual. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's an interesting <laughs> question. And thank you very much for Justin for asking it. Uh, on that note, we're going to grab a couple new beers. Caleb's going to grab one. I might grab one because I don't know that this is drinkable. And we'll be back <laughs> in just a minute. made it this far this is beer five this will be the end of our free version for this episode thank you so much for sticking with us we have another another half or another section segment after this but in the meantime we got one last thing to talk about here caleb what are you drinking i am drinking uh omegon breweries out of cooperstown new york and they've crushed it for us gnome gang uh-huh let's go pronounce gnome i don't know omegon gnome gang yeah uh give me your pronunciation index there on twitter Oh yeah, rate that. Uh, but it's a blonde ale. I'm going to give it a shot right now. Give it a shot right now. I want someone to just clip the snippet of us saying Omagong Nomagang different ways and then send that to aliens and say, what's wrong with what's wrong with humans? Hmm. Uh-oh. He's thinking. Hmm. And he says it's a... I don't know how to describe this in terms of flavor because we're not professional beer reviewers. Nah, Except like, we are because we're being like paid. We are. <laughs> but we're, we <laughs> shouldn't be because capitalism doesn't... The Peter Principle. Right. I shouldn't be this high level. Yeah, that's true. It's like... It's everything I dislike about beers, but the best parts of them all added together until it's a four. 
I can't. Nothing about what you just said makes sense. Here's the thing: like, it's a really strong hoppy taste at the end. It's got a really strong aftertaste. It tastes like beer, like punch in the face beer. And I'm not talking craft beer. I'm talking low shelf beer. But it's it's like the best aspects of it, and I want to drink a lot more of it. I feel like what you just said was like all of these spiky balls that have killed me were very shiny. So I'm happy. Hey, they you know what? People me? play Dark Cells, and like this is the worst part of every video game, and I fucking love them put together in this single year package of fucking terrible video game tropes. Okay. And like, oh, I gotta go all the way back to the beginning and grind through all this. Yes, please. It's that in terms of beer, and it's a solid welcome to Deadhouse. My goodness, I am. I'm sticking with it. This sounds like absolute insanity. I'll try the beer in a minute. Well, yeah. you're the one who made the episode go long. What the fuck are we talking in about? In the meantime, man, throwing shade. <laughs> Drink the Nomagong Nomagang and get salty. Eat about a it. s'mores cookie. Right. <laughs> Bitch. Uh, we've got we've got another question from Lonnie. Two questions from Lonnie. Now listen, people, I made this mistake because I chose an additional it's question from mistake. Lonnie. It's not a mistake, it's a double Lonnie. It's you're a, lampshading. It's right. a double Lonnie. Yeah. The, they're two good questions, so good yeah. on you, Lonnie. So so here's what you get. To everyone else, I apologize for the double up here. It's on me, uh, as is much much of the things that have gone wrong today. Hey, pro tip. Lonnie didn't pick the same ask mixed six. As he did subtopic well, suggestion. Yep. Many of you do. Right. Not the way to get in he, twice, he, though. He doubled it up here, people. Not the way to get in twice, like, in terms of sheer game theory. So Lonnie has asked us in In Binge Binger, which is our television show segment, I'd love to hear the two of you savage Big Bang Theory and point to good nerd TV. You got it, bud. I'm here <laughs> for you. This fucking show is terrible. Also, you know, like the previous segment, we're talking about unlikable antiheroes. Like, Sheldon is a fucking monster. He's <laughs> awful. He is a terrible That's, He's just not a good human is yeah. the problem there. So, so Caleb, I'm going to let you jump in here and just go nuts. Um, I want to try some of this Nomagong, and frankly, I've said too much. So just let her rip. So look, I had a thesis, and it's not a like original thesis. It's a pretty standard objective relation. That um, Big Bang Theory is, I apologize for the term, because I cannot think of a better way to say it. I know it's somewhat ethnically insensitive. It is nerd blackface. And I am not equating the experience of nerds to anyone in the uh, black community. It is not anywhere close in terms of prejudice. But it is taking a what was once oppressed archetype. Not currently oppressed, because nerd is no longer a meaningful term. But what was once oppressed archetype and, like, ethnic – not ethnic, but uh, culture being oppressed. And it is using it for the fucking profit of people that did the oppression. And I know that that is in no way significant to the African-American experience. But I, I cannot think of a better term. Analog. I cannot think of a better term to sum up the microcosm the minimalist expression of what Big Bang Theory is. Because it is everything that a jock thinks is true about nerds made manifest yeah. for eight seasons. Yeah, yeah. More, hot, more than that even, I think. Yeah. My hot take on this, right? my, my new addition to the thesis, if it's part of a new trend in theory in which it is the dying, gasping death throes of sitcom television and the boomers who watched it. Because have you seen The Great Indoors? I haven't and I won't. And you shouldn't. Nope. 
because its fanatical hatred of fucking millennials is nothing compared to like an ISIS member's hatred of like Christians. Like mm-hmm. it is pales in comparison to its utter loathing. It's almost as bad as Iron Fist. Anyone under the age almost. of thirty-five. Right. No, yeah. it's it's worse than Iron Fist because it's fucking clearly ideological. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it is propaganda in the extreme. And I think the Big Bang Theory is notable for being the first expression of this new trend in television, meaning that you watch primetime, top three channel television, yep. and you are looking for shit to assure you that your generation is best, that those weird kids are fucking weird, and you don't need to expand your fucking definition of anything. Nerds are nerds and discern scorn forever. Young people are stupid shits ruining society, and you were the last great generation. Like, it is that affirmation, like, dying throes of televised media. And it is notable for being the beachhead for that. It is the first on the beach Against that sort of tide of history. They're going to lose. It's not going to go like D-Day. They're not going to make it. Um, but they're the first on the beach to be like, oh, nerds, blurg. Like, and that's my theory about Big Bang Theory. So nerd blackface, unfortunate term. Agree to it on the front pants. Wasn't the person who coined it, to be clear. But in addition to that, I think it's first on the beach for being the unfortunate death throes of the boomer generation controlling all culture ever. And this is their, like, last gas. They will hold Bazinga up as their torch they will. into history. And boy, that's going to fizzle fast. But they're, that's what they've chosen to, like, throw up to the sky sure. and imprint themselves in the stars. So I am conflicted here, and I just, I just want to be honest about that. Because on the one hand, I agree with everything that you've said. <laughs> I think that the Big Bang's treatment of bullying is disgusting. I think that much of the show's punchline for the first couple of seasons is uh, based around the the four main protagonists making jokes about how much they were ostracized or physically threatened or beaten as children for their nerdery, <laughs> followed by a fucking laugh track. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's disgusting. Yeah. Especially I, I, and, and when I was still an academic, I spent some time kind of interrogating what are two very divergent cultural narratives of the 2010s, mm-hmm. which is the Big Bang Theory's popularity and treatment of bullying as read against the cultural narrative against bullying, which really picks up in like 2009, 2010 and this aggressive social push against it. I think those two things are incommensurate and I think they're purposefully incommensurate and I'm interested in that. Um, I also think, and this is kind of my other wild stab at the show, uh, other than what you said that the moment I learned how old um, the actors actually were, playing the characters, it ruptured the whole thing for me. So the moment that I learned that Jim Parsons was like 40 playing a like late twenties, Sheldon Cooper, who'd never really grown up in terms of maturity or emotional intelligence. I I almost, I almost couldn't look at the show again. And here's the thing. I don't know if I'm wrong on this. Am I, am I wrong on this? I, I, I'm not big in celebrity culture. Is Jim Parsons gay? Yes. Okay. He is gay, correct? Yeah. He, uh, the tragedy yeah. deepens so much further right. from right. there. Yeah. So much, well, 
that he's with a woman that he's asexually attracted to, yeah. and that that asexual nature is sort of like being portrayed to the man's yeah. gayness, yeah. and like in that like the fucking meta aspect of that is deeply goddamn depressing. And then you take the feminist angle of it, in that you have um, what's the female character? Amy Farrah Fowler, who's played by um, a, not a bad actress and a PhD in neuroscience, nonetheless. Yes, yeah, Miriam, yeah. or is that Mia- the- that that's that's My, Sheldon? Maya. Yeah, Miami. Yeah. Alex. Yeah, so, I mean, like, yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Like, the fact that he can only be attracted to a woman who is purely of this platonic nature of the mind. Right. And he can never admit to being attracted to a man. Like, the fucking meta aspect of it, if we're going by... Well, if they, we're going by Kenneth Burke, that they fetishize, the fact that, like, you can't dissociate right. the author and his historical context from the character, yeah. if we're going by ke- pure Kenneth Burke standards... Right. It's just fucking dark. Right. It's dystopianly fucking crazy. And then the fact that like the character that's in with the other guy, what the, the right. neighbor Raj, Raj and Howard, uh that What's a oh, female neighbor? Oh Penny the, and Penny, 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 yeah. Penny and Lynn. Yeah. The fact that she like takes the least nerdy of the four nerds. Right. Yeah, that's right. And that's the most the, normal. And that's the best she can get. Right. Because they are located to her. The fact that she is a woman with her own needs. And her own fucking wants in the world. Right. And the best she can get is the least nerdy of these four inexplicably socially incapables yeah. that live next to her. Right. And that's the most she can get to. From a feminist perspective, is goddamn insulting. And I'm a man. I can't imagine what it feels like to be anyone mm-hmm. who actually suffers from some sort of institutionalized right. privilege. Right. Like... It's just it's just profound it on is. on multiple levels. It it strikes a number of terribly abrasive chords. Uh, its treatment of homosexuality, its treatment of uh, East Asians, its treatment of culture. Oh god, the not- Indian shit with Raj. I haven't even started on yeah, that. The the its treatment of non-white people. Um, it's treatment of nerds. Which which look, if you're listening to this, you you got a stake in that. Is what I'm saying to you. So, so all of this is on one side of the ledger, and I get that. And this is the shit that troubles me. Here, here's the other part of this that I struggle with, which is I've probably seen the first six seasons of The Big Bang Theory like 15 or 17 times because, because in terms of background noise, it's almost scientifically written to be that, and I understand it. It's laugh-tracked. It's multi-cammed. It is not particularly witty. It is formulaic in nature, and occasionally I find myself chuckling at the easy jokes because easy jokes aren't bad jokes all the time. No. And so it's not that I like it, although I think at a point in my life I did like it. It's just that I I understand what it's trying to accomplish, and I don't know that I support any of it, but I get it, and therefore it can fade into the background for me, and that's that's a thing. For me, this is what makes it different than the great indoors and what I find it to be the fucking flagship of this sort of like boomer death throw. Right. What makes it more insidious than the rest of that shit is that it's relying on your childhood being yeah. a background of sitcoms. It is. And I'm there and you're there. Yeah. And producer Ross is there and we recognize the fucking beats is there and right. we recognize it, the laugh tracks. It, it, it's got that wonder years kind of And we like, have yeah. that sort of nostalgic attachment to our previous family even as it fucking poisons our goddamn nest. That's right. And like that's what blows my goddamn minds about. It. Like it's not just blind. Right. It's like 
ideology. It's, it's ideology distilled. Yeah. Like it is a black, right. like fucking purified form of just sheer. Yeah. Like boomer ideology. Chuck, Chuck Lorre knows what he's doing, which yeah. is why Two and a Half Men has been successful, and Mom is oh, successful. God, don't even give a fuck. Start on Two right. and a Half Men. So yeah. I, I think that I think that it, you know, in for as an argument for functionality, there's something very obvious to the success of Chuck Lorre's ability to distill, to use your terms as a mm-hmm. good term, distill the ethos of a culture in one way or another. And so, so I recognize that it's done that. So, yes, I, 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 I don't watch it anymore. We, we, in fact, tried to watch an episode last evening, and I found myself kind of pining to turn it off because I couldn't deal with it <gasps> it's any like, longer. It's nauseating. It is. It is. But I get its allure in some weird way, and I think much of that is based on kind of the, the, what, what you've described. But I also get on the back half of that how awful and fucking terrible much of that is, and it's why probably at the end of the day I don't watch much of it anymore. And here's what I will say to end on a positive note yeah. to Lonnie's question. Can I point to Goodner TV? Yes. Lonnie, I know it's hard to see this on the island and after all the deaths and the screams in the trenches. We won, buddy. We won. All TV is nerd TV. It's really. We fucking did it. We got them. We beat the shit out of them. That's right. (laughs) They got Friday Night Lights and the NCAA and March Madness and nothing else. Right. We own Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., we own Netflix. Fringe. None of them fucking have a fucking antenna in their house anymore. We did it. It's a meaningless term. As Bane said, we were defeated by victory. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like, the nerds <laughs> handed it out. It's done. And, like, I understand it's hard to accept that being a warrior of a certain generation right. in the battle. Yeah. But you got to accept it. Yeah. It's finished. The revolution accomplished it. We got to start to the business of governing. That's right. Culture. That's right. We, we got to make a decision about what we want the future to look like. Exactly. Rather than worrying. Yeah, the about- revolution cannot continue forever. That's we right. have to make the new establishment. That's right. We, and the new establishment is nerd. We, no. we, got, we got options now. Yeah. Lots and lots More of options. More than one. That's right. Yeah. In fact, my problem is not that I'm hurting for good nerd TV to watch. My problem is that there's too much good nerd TV I'm to watch. Flooded. And I got to do other shit. Yeah. I got to make priority decisions. Uh, only a couple episodes ago, someone asked us in an era, in a golden age of television, how do you make decisions about what to watch and not to watch? And the premise of that question is when the bulk of media is now generated to appease what it is we're interested in, how do you start drawing lines? I will, I will say this as a personal anecdote to end this segment. There was a video store at my home that I walked down six blocks of hill to be clear. I had to walk up six blocks of hill to come back from the video store. I rented the VHS version of Fantastic Four. I'm not talking it's got fucking Horatio Hornblower in it. I'm talking pre that. I'm talking they fucking sabotaged it so it wouldn't ever air as a miniseries. And they put it as a VHS. I rented that no less than six times. Because they were comic characters, That's right. and I was that. Fucking, Are you talking about the Corman version? Yes. Wow. I was that fucking thirsty for it. Right. That was my childhood. We don't live there anymore, Lonnie. Right. Like we've gone beyond it. We have the expanse. Fucking. We've we've reached the six blocks of right. the hill, and we're now in the sunlight. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. And like that's the thing, man. Just let these boomers slowly die right. with whatever media comforts them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And move on to the world that we now rule. That's right. 
listen, if you've made it this far um, through all of the muck, uh, thank you so much. If you're not going on with us, we totally get it. We appreciate your time. We appreciate your interest. If you don't follow us on Twitter, please do, at TheMix6 and on Facebook.com slash TheMix6. Don't forget to rate and review. If you are going on or are interested in what happens next. And here's the thing. I'm going to say one more thing before Uh-oh. we get on the free version. Uh-oh. There are a certain number of people on the Patreon that back us more than $6 yeah. without any expectation of right. reward. What's that about? So I'm just going to say thank you to you on air. That's right. Andrew Baswell, the Baz of legend. We've said much about him. Saying that he backs at a certain level is ridiculous because with the sheer amount of hard alcohol he's given us. Absurd. Like we could refund him for five years right. at this point. We're not going yes. to. Still not we're not going to. No, to we're not. Clear. That's not. We're a, not. TM. That's not binding. We're not doing that. Right. <laughs> uh, but we still wouldn't catch up. Thank you, Baz. Uh, Gary Lapointe. Thank you, Daniel New Schneider. Thank you, Noah Carden. You are a scholar and, and what a gentleman. Was our first ten dollar backer. If I our remember first ten dollar backer. Unbelievable. Breaking the seal. Yeah. And David C. Thank you for just pushing the endeavor forward it's we, so cool we couldn't be more grateful right we really do appreciate it every time it happens caleb instantly sends a message to the group me and we all do a little bit of dance because we appreciate it so much and we love you so much for doing this on the other side today we will not be doing drunk enough trying something new. instead and, and and this is in response to things that a number of people have asked for this could fail dramatically it could be the be worst clear. thing we've ever done and we just it's did that a big NCAA what if thing. on the other end of this gap uh we are gonna do an rpg folks on the other half of this the other side of this the thing. education of spencer harris begins begins tonight right. so we'll see you on the other side or we won't and if not that's cool too thanks so much don't forget to rate and review on itunes and we'll see you on the next side